When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm chatting with Myra Tofik, author of For the Encouragement of Learning, The Origins of Canadian Copyright Law, published by the University of Toronto Press in April 2023. For the Encouragement of Learning addresses the contested history of copyright law in Canada, where the economic and reputational interests of authors and the commercial interests of publishers often conflict with the public interest in access to knowledge. It chronicles Canada's earliest copyright law to explain how pre-Confederation policymakers understood copyright's normative purpose. This book explores how copyright laws were integral features of British North American education policy and highlights the important role played by teachers, education reformers, and politicians in the emergence and development of these laws. Myra Tofik is the Don Rodzik Family Chair in Law and Entrepreneurship and a Distinguished University Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Windsor. Myra, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so before we get started in talking about your book, could you share a little with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work in intellectual property law? Uh, thanks for that question. I was born and I grew up in Montreal in the province of Quebec. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I went to a French elementary school and I'm therefore bilingual, even though um, English, we spoke English at home. I studied English literature at McGill University, and then I went to law school at McGill. Uh, and I did my graduate work at the University of London in intellectual property law. So I, what brought me to my work in intellectual property law, when I finished my BA, I was thinking about what to do next. And I decided to go to law school. Um, and I tried to bridge my love of books with the law and copyright law was the most obvious connection and, and you know, sort of almost 40 years down the road, um, I found that when my, you know, sort of think about copyright law today, and I refer to it this way in my book, actually, as the law of the book. And so for me, it's been a seamless kind of trajectory in terms of my love of literature and books and um, my way of approaching co- copyright law. And I started my academic career at the University of Windsor in 1991, and and throughout, my focus has been on intellectual property law, but especially copyright. Super. Thank you. That's actually really kind of inspiring to hear. Thinking about my own experience going to library school, so many of my classmates were were literature undergraduates who wanted to do something with their love of literature, um, and that, you know, becoming a librarian felt intuitive, but... um, I can also see how it's also intuitive to go into law and think about intellectual property law um, from that trajectory. So that's really neat. Well, you'd also just interject, you'd be surprised at how many lawyers, former lawyers become authors, you know, so write sort of fiction and all, you know, so there's, there is there's a, a loop. Sort of deep yeah. connection. There's a loop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's fantastic. So turning to your new book for the encouragement of learning, what brought you to this project and what helped you realize the value of writing a history of copyright law? Uh, so the book, this book has taken about 20 years to write from start to finish. So it's been truly a labor of love. I mean, it's more than half my academic career spent on this work. Um, and I started to think about the history of, of Canadian copyright law because I was teaching copyright law at the law school. And in the early 2000s, um, Canadian uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, Canadians, Canadian courts started to make statements in their decisions about the origins of Canadian copyright law. And some said that 
our tradition followed the American lead. Others said that, no, 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 uh, Canadian law is British law. And others said that our law was derived from both uh, American, British and French. And so, you know, you had these statements and these judgments and it means something different to say that our laws derive from American law or the British tradition or the French tradition. Um, American copyright law is the most what we call user oriented in that, you know, it, it focuses more on the advancement of learning uh, and looks at the role of authors as publish and publishers as sort of really um, the vehicles through which the circulation of knowledge can occur. And the British tradition tends more towards a balance between the rights of authors and publishers on the one hand and the reading public on the other. And the French system uh, is considered to be the most author-oriented system. So where the really copyright is seen as an author's right. And practically speaking, these different orientations mean that the legislation and its interpretation will be subtly different. Um, and so when these courts were making these pronouncements and different, they're conflicting, they didn't provide any sources. I mean, they proclaim these as given, sort of everyone knows that Canadian law is about this. Um, and I was teaching these cases in law school, and I'm thinking, I don't know this. Um, this wasn't what I was taught. What I was taught was the, the law was derived from the British law, that, that we were part of the British tradition, and that copyright law is a publisher's right. And, you know, then that was that. Uh, and I mean, obviously saying that it's super simplistically, but that's basically the way I was taught. So I started to look for Canadian sources to provide evidence or more understanding of these early roots. And I realized at that time, and this was, as I say, you know, you know, about 2001, 2002, uh, so quite a while back, there was very, very, very little written about Canadian copyright history, especially from a Canadian perspective. And I'd always been interested in copyright history. I, I gravitated towards books and articles on U.S. copyright legal history, British copyright legal history. These works, you know, they were the, the inspiration, in a sense, for me to tackle the Canadian story because it had never been told before. Uh, and it's been quite a circuitous journey. I mean, as I said, it's taken me a long time. And, you know, I, I have, you know, my commitments to the law school are not in legal history. And so, um, you know, sometimes I had to do this off the side of my desk. But uh, this book and its approach to me is a result of my own particular background and experience. So thank you for asking me my, that question about um, my own background. Um, because I'm bilingual, and since the first copyright law was enacted in Lower Canada, the province of Quebec, um, the French province, uh, I was able to read the text in French, you know, I was able to sort of then, you know, um, read in both both languages and understand the context in particularly uh, in, 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 in most of the writings at the time, uh, which were, um, you know, it, often in French. I studied at McGill, I went to law school there, I have a civil law and a common law background. So again, that enabled me to sort of navigate the early period, the prehistory, let's say, of copyright in Quebec by understanding kind of the civil law context that informed kind of some of the way in which some of the key players in our story um, understood the law. And of course, with the English common law background, uh, which was really ultimately the, um, you know, Canadian copyright law is ultimately a, a common law text or common law derived. Um, so the British system, under the British system, I, I was able, of course, to have an understanding of that legal tradition as well. And because I'm a first generation Quebecer and Canadian, I think it helped me because I stand outside of the dominant French and English establishment. So I was able to look a little bit more, I think, dispassionately at that particular period in time without sort of being, you know, as I say, standing on the outside looking in in a way. And I think that helped. So, um, but I, I do want to say something about, I know we talk about it and you're talking, it's the, it's the, the, the title says Canadian copyright law, and we're going to talk a lot about Canada and Canadian copyright law. But I really see this book as a part of a larger map, a larger sort of mapping exercise of different copyright stories. So as I said, I was very um, 
inspired by the work that that was done and has and continues to be done by US scholars on US copyright history and by British scholars on British copyright history. And I hope my book adds to that sort of narrow that larger narrative about every country's copyright stories, because every country has a different copyright story. And and so I, my, one of my hopes is that this book will inspire others to delve into the origins of their copyright law. Uh, and one of the takeaways, I hope, from my book is that copyright law is contextually dependent. Every country has its own copyright story, even if the text of the legislation is derived from somewhere else or is similar to the text in other jurisdictions. And so what, you know, for example, Canada's early law and American, and, you know, the, the early law in the United States was derived from the British Statute of Anne. But each jurisdiction, sort of Canada and the United States, interpreted and fashioned the law to suit their particular socioeconomic, educational and cultural contexts. You know, I know people write about, recognize that there are different Englishes spoken, that these are actually different Englishes. It's not Eng English as a uniform language. Uh, different Englishes spoken around the world. And, you know, there's even sort of writing about, there's, you know, people have written about Quebec English, which is a distinctive type of English. Um, so examining how copyright was understood and how it was approached in different countries, I think, will give us a more comprehensive sense of the law in action. And part of the goal would be then to offer insights about universal commonalities, you know, but as well as regional or, or localized differences. And I think uncovering these commonalities and these differences is relevant for legal scholars as well as book historians. So, you know, for example, I think, you know, what insights could be discovered through scholarship that maps the copyright stories of all the jurisdictions whose law was derived from the Statute of Anne. So let's say British Commonwealth countries in the United States. I think if you took all of these stories together, the collective effort would provide a very rich and complete understanding of the law and its impact on the book trade, on authorship, on literacy and learning. So I, I really sort of my aim is to offer a way for other countries or, or scholars in other countries to really delve into their own copyright stories, because those copyright stories need to be told. I mean, as I say, that the sort of the the way I was taught in law school and the way sort of, you know, and I did my graduate work in the United Kingdom, so of course it was British copyright law, was that there was really no history of Canadian law other than British history. And so, and yet, you know, if, I, I hope the, those who read the book will see that the 19th century Canadian story is rich and it's its own story. And it's, you know, so it's unapologetically Canadian, but it does, I hope, provide a, a way in which others can uh, pursue scholarship of this kind to tell their own copyright stories. That's so exciting as kind of a um, a motivation and a inspiration um, or, or provocation for others to do this kind of research and add to like what you've described as this bigger map um, of our copyright histories. Um, and so then turning to the um, the chapters of this book, you're, you've divided Canadian copyright history into two periods. Uh, the first is discussed at length in chapters one through seven and examines first attempts to enact copyright laws in many provinces between 1824 and 1842. Could you explain the various contexts that these copyright laws were emerging in related to colonization, a new and growing printing trade in British North America, and also a growing interest in universal education? Yeah. Um, so first, just to say that the when I, you know, we're talking about Canada and Canadian, but the entire book really is situated prior to Confederation. So prior to Canada becoming the country that we know today. Um, and really what you had at the time were a number of colonies, provinces that were, you know, referred to as sort of British North America. Uh, and so I was looking and the reason, you know, I, I ended up there was really my goal had been to find the earliest expression of copyright in what Canada so start but it ended up obviously in British North America in in 1832 and in, in lower Canada and Quebec that was the first statute that was enacted um, in in what was to become a province that was to become sort of part of Canada after 1867. 
And I wanted to trace that early as the origin sort of, and to try and under, understand what motivated um, uh, the, the politicians, the, the lawmakers at the time to, to decide that, you know, Lower Canada needed a copyright act. Uh, and so the period that so that that you're right, the first seven chapters are really sort of looking at um, uh, the, the, the pre-confederation situation when the provinces uh, first started to consider a copyright law and to try and unpack what what kind what prompted that uh, particular um, action. So. You know, it started with a failed bill in Quebec, in Lower Canada, in 1824, um, and then it ended sort of in the, that first sort of stage in the enactment of the 1832 Lower Canadian Copyright Act. And there is a chapter that deals with the other um, provinces. Really, it was Lower Canada that that led, you know, was in, clearly led the charge in this respect. Nova Scotia had a, a copyright act. Um, uh, did enact a copyright act in the in the late 1830s, and then there were failed attempts in New Brunswick and in Upper Canada, which is Ontario. Uh, what I did find, though, looking at the, the this British North American context, is that these the, the 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 exercise of copyright within the legislatures of the provinces are all emerged from a, the same pattern, um, and it, frankly, it's similar to the pattern that occurred in the United States at the beginning. These were petitions um, made to the legislature from teachers uh, about their school books, you know, wanting to print their school books. So in this early period, the problem that the law was intended to solve was the problem of school book supply. Teach, you know, teachers in the province were writing their own school books. They own, they had only one manuscript copy to work from, and of course, you can't teach from one copy. You can't, you know, multiple students with one one manuscript copy, and they couldn't afford the cost of printing multiple copies. So the cost of printing was very high, and teachers didn't 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 earn a lot, and schools couldn't support it. Uh, everything was really, you know, emerging. This was a developing world at the time. This, these were developing societies. So these teachers appealed to the legislature for financial support to help with printing. So at this early stage, the purpose of copyright was to encourage learning. I mean, the statute of Anne, I mean, that it was titled an act for the encouragement of learning. So literally, in the case of British North America, we're talking about learning as in schools and school books. So the history was rooted in the need to establish education systems, um, especially public systems um, that provided universal education. Um, and part of the context is that in this early to mid 19th century, um, in, in North America, you know, and particularly in British North America, literacy and learning were, were understood sort of within enlightenment principles of human edification and advancement. In the context of Lower Canada, education was also fundamental to this sort of this new society that was built on democratic principles. So an educated population could govern itself, which was especially important for lower Canadians of French descent. They were the majority of the population, but they were governed by the British. Um, and so providing, educating the population meant that they could assert greater agency. They were empowered to, 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 to assert uh, more, more of, of um, you know, agency over their, the way they were governed. Uh, and as well, there was a utilitarian element to education, because again, we're talking about a developing society, the provinces needed individuals to support the economy through skilled trades and the professions. And so education was very, very important um, in this period. So you know, you didn't hear. So, it, so what I found was, you know, it was all about schools and school books. It was about education policy. You, you didn't hear from the traditional copyright players you know, I was expecting to hear from, so authors and publishers. There wasn't, you know, I found in this period, there was no piracy really to speak of. I mean, people weren't, publishers weren't reproducing the works of others without permission. Uh, book sales were, weren't that lucrative. So again, there, there wasn't the incentive that, that copyright um, provides to authors and publishers didn't exist in the early 19th century kind of lower Canadian context, many in the province weren't literate and, or they couldn't afford books. 
And it was only in the latter half of the century that printers and publishers became more active in copyright policy circles. And even then, it was only towards the end of the 19th century did Canadian authors start to find their voice as an important copyright constituency. So the early period, 1824 to 1841, and we'll get into why I ended there, uh, you know, that's the first period, was all about teachers and learners, the high, and the high cost of printing, and the need to encourage the circulation of knowledge. So copyright was integral to education policy at the time. Um, but this is also a colonial story in the sense that British North America was a British colony. And the interactions are therefore, you know, between the British and French colonists and the British Empire. So absent from the record is any re recognition of the French and English who settled in Brit British North America as being colonizers themselves. I mean, the sort of indigenous voices are largely absent from this period of recorded copyright history. So with that in mind, my focus was to tell Canada's story as, as, a, as a colonial story because the existing scholarship on Canada, in copyright in Canada, was from the vantage point of the empire. So British scholars studying Anglo-American copyright, they were sympathetic to Canada, but they still looked at the question from the imperial sort of colonizer standpoint. And I wanted to tell a different colonial story. So that was one in which British North Americans had sort of, you know, agency over their actions, even if as it turned out, they were largely undermined by their colonial status and the geopolitics of, of Anglo-American copyright relations that, you know, really reached a peak in the latter half of the century. So I hope that yeah. answers your long-winded way of answering your question. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think kind of outlining those key players, um, the way you did in your book was so helpful to me because as you noted, it's it's not what I expected um, it, in terms of who was who who is advocating um, for copyright at that point in time. So you mentioned there were a, a lot of initial attempts there uh, to get something akin to copyright on the books in Upper and Lower Canada. When copyright laws were finally enacted in 1832, what did they look for? What did they look like? And whose interests were they looking out for? And what kind of work were they supporting? Well, again, the thing that was most striking, so between 1824, which is the first failed attempt, uh, a failed attempt to enact a copyright law in Lower Canada, so Quebec, and the passage of the first act in 1832, there were these petitioners, individuals who were entitled sort of under the parliamentary system to come forward and ask the legislature for some kind of grant or reward or some kind of um, uh, action sort of to help, to help them. Uh, and what I found was these petitioners were, they were teachers. They, they as I said, they, they were teachers. They came forward to ask for financial assistance to help them print their school books. I mean, some, and, you know, these, the individuals were, were, you know, really interesting. I mean, interesting people. Um, and some were internationally renowned celebrities like the Londoner Joseph Lancaster, who sort of started and monitored the monitorial school system that spread throughout the world. I mean, he was, you know, quite a phenomenon back then. And he happened to live, he sort of came and sort of settled in uh, Lower Canada at, at this critical period uh, in, in the early 1830s. Others were local influential educators like Joseph-François Perrault, and who currently still, I mean, has schools named after him in Montreal and Quebec City. I mean, these were important figures, even in the history of, of Quebec and of Canada. And it was a confluence of these people and circumstances that enabled this first copyright law. So the first thing to note is that the Lower Canadian Statute was a reproduction of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1831. So this is significant because not only was the text the same, but I, I suggest in the book that the, Canadian, the Lower Canadian legislator viewed copyright's underlying policy to be along American lines. In other words, that the law was intended for the encouragement of learning, that authors and publishers were not the ultimate beneficiaries of the law. Rather, it was learners, readers, and users. So what we call now today users of copyright works. It was the Standing Committee on Education and Schools that recommended the introduction of the legislation. And they referred specifically to wanting to emulate the successes of the, the quote, adjoining states in copyright and school book production. So they looked to the United States as, as, a, as the model. 
And, you know, at, at that time, and it's still today, there were strong networks and connections between the provinces and the U.S., particularly New York State. Um, you know, the lower Canadian uh, legislature, the committee that recommended the act, it studied the success of schools um, in New York State. And, you know, that they clearly, in that sending that message uh, uh, in their committee report, um, really wanted to align its, the, the lower Canada very closely with the American example. So it was teachers, but it was ultimately kind of the need to educate, uh, particularly school children, but also, you know, educate adults, you know, in, in, you know, provide knowledge, what they called useful knowledge, um, didactic sort of works that could, uh, could provide, um, uh, you know, neurally, that provided information and learning. Yeah, that's really um, fascinating. And also those connections with the United States are, are really interesting to see. Um, so what were some of the real impacts that we see of these initial copyright acts? You've alluded a little bit to how they supported producers of knowledge, but um, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that and also talk about some of the limitations that started to become visible. So um, generally speaking, at least copyright legal theory you know, sees the law as an incentive for authors and publishers to write and to write books and disseminate knowledge. I mean, that, that, you know, that these are the, both the agents for the diffusion of knowledge. And copyright does that by giving a monopoly, gives security of the copyright owner in the marketplace. So the copyright owner can stop, you know, unauthorized reproduction, so the piracy of their works, and they could generate revenue through sales because they have exclusivity for a certain period of time. At the time, it was 28 years. So, um, so because the statute was enacted, you know, to encourage teachers to write and printers and publishers to print and publish school books, I, I looked at registration data from Lower Canada to see whether copyright actually achieved, um, you know, the, these goals. Did it have the intended impact? Uh, did copyright result in an uptick in school books and other material being produced? Uh, was there a greater variety of school books and other books being produced after 1832? So the first conclusion was, and it was, and it's not very different from the, the early copyright experience of the US and the UK, take up was very low. So, you know, not more than 10% of all the books that were printed and published at the time were registered for copyright. You needed to register back then. We know copyright arises automatically today, but back then there was a registration process. You had to pay, it wasn't a, a, you know, a, a large fee, but you had to pay a fee and you had to go through an administrative form, formality. So uh, only about, you know, up to maximum of 10% of, of the total uh, print output was, was registered for copyright. Now, school books were by far the largest genre of protected books, but still, again, within the context of a much larger, you know, overall uh, publishing um, output. Most of the works were registered by the authors rather than publishers. Um, where publishers did register the copyright in their own name, so they owned the copyright, it was for works that they themselves had, had, had authored. So like the compiled almanacs, they would register them. So in a sense, they weren't acting, they weren't, I guess the, the difference is if they were registering the work of an author but registering it for themselves, they would be um, acting as sort of entrepreneurial publishers in that sense. They're not no longer, they're, they're, they're recognizing the commercial value of the work that someone else has written and they want, it, they want to sort of derive the benefit from that. When it, you're talking about authors registering the copyright in their own name, um, part of it obviously is to be able to generate revenue, but that 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 the sort of the entrepreneurial publisher has yet to emerge. The one, the the, the risk taker, though, the business person who's who's not the one who actually puts pen to paper, and and that 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 sort of the the entrepreneurial publisher doesn't emerge in Canada until much later in the century. So we're really talking about authors driving kind of the, the, the copyright records. So what that meant, at least to me, is that in the first decade of, of this copyright period in Lower Canada, there wasn't sufficient incentive for printers and publishers to take publishing risks. 
and I looked as well as publishers archives, you know, and the most important publisher at the time is the firm of Nielsen and Cowan that was based in Quebec City. Um, they didn't change their practices at all with the advent of copyright. You know, um, you know, what they did was, you know, they they were, you know, they 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 had bestsellers on their, you know, and their they were religious works in their catalog before copyright, before 1832. Well, all they did was they registered their copyright in these um, bestseller best-selling religious works, but they didn't expand their repertoire. So you know, it was business as usual. They they now had more security. They had to, you know, they had to go through an administrative burden, but it didn't encourage them to expand the, the types of works that they were publishing. And the one example I have, which I give in the book, is sort of a cautionary tale of a different printer and publisher who did, you know, and arguably because of the advent of copyright, embark on a, a very ambitious publishing project. He, he had secured the copyright from the author um, and, you know, was producing this three-volume tome treatise on civil law, but it turned out to be a financial disaster for him. And so his failure, I think, would have had a chilling effect on others. So, you know, there, there aren't these, these sort of positive kind of results from, uh, from copyright. Um, and the, the, though the copyright registration data like show uh, a noticeable increase in school books, um, overall school book production, you know, did increase incrementally over that period, but it's not at all clear that it was due to copyright. You know, there was a significant education bill, uh, education act passed in 1829 that probably had more impact on the, the, the increase in school book production school book production than copyright did, again, because the registration rates were so low. So it, there, did, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be that push or that incentive. There's no rush to copyright, you know, um, that, you know, meant that copyright probably didn't have the, or did not have the impact or the intended impact. Um, and then publishers of the day, and it wasn't just in, 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 in British North America or in lower Canada. I mean, this was generally, you find it sort of, you know, among, uh, you know, printers and publishers in France and in England, and what, that they made the argument that copyright would lower book prices. So, you know, when appealing to the legislature for copyright, they said, you know what, uh, if you give us this, you know what'll happen, it'll be better for readers because prices will go down. Uh, Nielsen and Cowan, the, the, the firm in Lower Canada, made this claim uh, as well. Um, but it's and it, it's difficult to track book prices in, in Lower Canada in that period. So, I mean, I'm not you know, what I have in the book is not nearly sort of uh, comprehensive and thorough, uh, but there's really no evidence to suggest that prices decreased. Um, so ideally, copyright should have increased the available repertoire of books for, for readers, so school children and others, as well as reducing the price per book, and the law did neither. So I thought, what are you, what are you left with? The fact that copyright didn't achieve its policy objectives in the short term, and it, 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 it maps it closely to what happened elsewhere. Um, you know, if it ever achieved any of its goals, it would ha it'd have to have been in the long term. And there are lots of conclusions to be drawn, but this certainly, at least for me, called into question whether copyright is, is the best vehicle to achieve, you know, the, the intended policy goals. So that's whether in the 19th century or now, you know, in the 21st. We assume that copyright does what it, we think it does, but we don't really have much evidence to make informed decisions about the law and its actual impact. So I think what I learned, you know, what you could sort of take out of the, 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 the impact or, you know, the, the sort of questionable impact in the 19th century, you know, one can ask the same question of, you know, what is copyright achieving, what, it, what we think it's achieving today? That is a really, I just like fascinating takeaway. I think you're right. We make a lot of assumptions about what copyright does. Um, and maybe we can ask more questions. Um, so then after 1842, copyright in Canada became shaped very directly by the passage of the UK Copyright Act. What impact did this law have on Canada, uh, on English and French speaking Canadian readers, on the ways that cultural producers in Canada use the protection of copyright and on an emerging cultural identity? Well, 1842, which is so, you know, the number of things happened in the early 1840s. First of all, um, the, the province of Lower Canada and the province of Upper Canada were uh, merged into what became the province of Canada. So that's one thing that so, you know, uh, 
to just bear in mind. But more importantly, in 1842, the United Kingdom enacted, uh, a, a, you know, totally reformed the Statute of Anne. And it enacted sort of a new Copyright Act, the 18, we'll call it the 1842 UK Copyright Act, uh, partly to try and deal with a problem that the British had with the Americans over copyright. And so the history of Anglo-American copyright in the 19th century, I think, is well documented. I think people know uh, some, that some American printers and publishers were reprinting British copyright works without permission uh, of, the British co of the copyright owner. Now, this wasn't unlawful under U.S. copyright law, but it generated enormous concern in the United Kingdom, you know, because British copyright holders were unable to benefit from, you know, the very large and growing American readership. And so these American printers and publishers prospered at the expense of British authors and publishers. Um, and so it created this sort of protracted sort of, you know, international kind of um, uh, attempts to, to between the Americans, well, British, particularly the Americans to try and resolve this and enter into some kind of uh, treaty uh, where uh, Americans would recognize uh, British copyright works, and you know would would um, would the, 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 and would, that would obviously prevent unauthorized reprinting, and so from so the the the, the sort of the unauthorized the, the, the sort of reprint market kind of started to grow in the late 1830s, and by 1842, you know, there's a document Charles Dickens made a tour of North America, and so he did. He not only of the United States, he stopped in Canada, as the British in the British North America as well, to appeal for you know international copyright, some kind of way of resolving this issue, because of course he was very very popular in the United States, and his works were being reproduced uh, without permission and circulated there, and they would make their way to um, to the British North American provinces as well. So, um, but the, the, the sort of this the geopolitical situation had a direct and lasting uh, impact on on British North America. So, with this 1842 Copyright Act, what the America, what the British, the statute prohibited unauthorized American reprints of British copyright works from entering the colonies. Okay, so right away, they were stopped at the border, they couldn't enter. Um, and and uh, what they all, the statute also did, and it, uh, was it prevented British North American printers and publishers from reprinting British works. So basically, it was an attempt to stop this, this uh, unlawful market, or at least unlawful in terms of these books entering the colonies. So so the first part of the book for me is, is really important and why I spend a lot of time on, on it is because it's the period in which British North America was left free to chart its own copyright course without imperial intervention. So to me, this is the purest and most authentic example of the reasons of the emergent, for the emergence of copyright in emerging economies. And things changed quite dramatically after 1842. So, and, and as I say, that period is, is much you know, there's a lot more scholarship on the post-1842 um, situation in North America generally. So the only way under the 1842 Act, the only way that uh, Canadians that are British, could get British books was to uh, order them, buy them directly from the UK. And that was very, very costly. You know, so most Canadians couldn't afford these books. And if you consider that, so this draconian law that stopped all these, all the American reprints from entering the market, I mean, Canadians had become used to enjoying the, the latest British bestseller at cheap prices. You know, they, were, they had easy and cost-effective access to the latest books and other print material. So what you see after 1841 is this shift now in direction. So rather than the inward looking, we are, you know, we're, we're going to, uh, address copyright because it matters to us to produce local school books for local readers. Now, all of a sudden, you know, Canada or the British North American colonies were caught up in this situation between the Americans and the British and the provinces, uh, the legislature sent, you know, all kinds of uh, entreaties and petitions to, to urge sort of the British government to reconsider. Because all of a sudden, all I mean, that, that was it. There were no books that really cir effectively circulating because they couldn't afford the British books and they couldn't get the American reprints. They couldn't reprint the books themselves. So, I mean, it, it had a huge impact. 
1847, so a few years later, the UK relented and they passed what's known as the Foreign Reprints Act. And what the Foreign Reprints Act said was that, uh, okay, we will allow American unauthorized reprints to circulate in Canada again, or in the colonies or in British North America again, uh, as long as the legislatures of the provinces enact legislation to protect British authors and publishers, so the British copyright holder. So find a way of, of you know, protecting British interests, and we will continue to allow American reprints to cross the border. And what the British had in mind was basically that um, there should be an import duty uh, collected on unauthorized reprints, so that, you know, when, when, uh, you know, when an American reprint was crossing into Canada, there was, there were border guard, customs officials, um, they were taxed at the border, and that duty was supposed to go to the benefit of the British copyright holder. So they'd be collecting money. So what it was a compromise in the sense that the British copyright holder didn't have the right or had no control over permission. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't prevent the reprint from happening, but they at least could get some uh, re- remuneration. They could get some financial return from the reprint. And so that was sort of the model under the Foreign Reprints Act. Uh, and, um, the province of Canada, this merged now between Ontario, was really by this time the largest, it was the most populous, and it was the most economically developed province. And the province of Canada didn't like that arrangement because they thought, why are you, why? We're, we're loyal British subjects. You're privileging American printers and publishers. You're, you're not, why? We could do it. We could print and publish these books cheaply. We could supply our market and we could pay the, the return, the same duty to the uh, British copyright holder. Why are you preferring the American uh, reprinter, you know, these scoundrels over uh, Canadian printers and publishers? Uh, and so they were frustrated. They became they became more politically active. You know, there were many more printers and publishers now in the province. Um, they were more politically active, uh, and they were frustrated that the the government imperial government would choose American reprinters instead of their loyal British subjects. So the rest of the century, the rest of the 19th century, uh, and well into the 20th century, is marked by Canadian attempts to enact copyright laws that favored the domestic and printing and publishing industry. Um, so in English Canada at the same time, and I think largely, I mean, there are other factors as well, but there was such public incense and outrage. They were incensed at um, the, this heavy handedness by the British. Um, so there, it, it, it led to some kind of growing sense of Canadian nationalism. You know, copyright was part of this emancipation because of those tensions between the British and the province of Canada. Um, and, and um, you know, the, these tensions had really become part of the larger public narrative. Um, and so cultural identity could only be fostered if the public had access to Canadian voices and Canadian stories. So a flourishing domestic printing and publishing industry, only a, a flourishing domestic printing and publishing industry would promote the works of local authors for local readers. And the idea of copyright as a vehicle to foster national identity is not peculiar to the province of Canada. I mean, in the U.S., Noah Webster, the, you know, a dictionary fame and was a teacher. He was a strong advocate for copyright. He wrote his American spelling book as a way of separating American education from its British roots. So you could see it's the same. I mean, the Canadians, there was no revolution and the Canadians were still very attached to the United Kingdom. But there is this sense now that they, 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 they sort of were galvanized now to sort of identify themselves as, as Canadians, as British North Americans, rather than in British terms. Um, and so, um, so, the, so for, for English Canada, that became, I think, you know, copyright became a, a way in which to foster sort of a Canadian cultural identity um, because of the way the printers and publishers were being treated um, uh, by the British in relation to, you know, the printing and publishing of British copyright works. And for the French, you know, the, the British, the UK Copyright Act of 1842 didn't affect French readers directly. It was all about, you know, American reprints and the, they were in the English language. Um, but um, the British had imposed import duties on foreign books, including French books. And so, of course, that created a barrier to the circulation of knowledge in the Frank, French language. 
And so to the extent that the English and French within the province of Canada found common cause, it was in relation to liberal access to affordable books in both language in both languages. And again, that we're talking mostly about useful books, you know, the books that impart knowledge. And this idea that sort of the encouragement of learning was at the heart of, um, you know, the circulation of books and that copyright played its part in that was very much kind of within the um, the, the mindset or the the, the sort of the the, um, the perspective of of British North Americans or particularly those in the province of Canada. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like what the things are that bring us together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, adversity from the outside. Yeah. You know, caused. Uh, you know this 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 I think you know a heightened sense of who 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 these uh, provincial Canadians were as Canadians. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then, at Confederation in 1867, copyright was placed under federal control. Mm -hmm. What are some of the key takeaways that you think we should keep in mind when considering how pre-Confederation copyright impacted where we've seen copyright come to in post-Confederation Canada? Well, I think one of the things I learned from this book, and one of the reasons I wanted to go back to, to the very beginning, was that I think we truncate. I mean, we look at, you know, copyright in, in sometimes in terms of centuries, sometimes in terms of decades, you know, this is our law today. Um, and this is, the, and that's all that matters, you know, is the, the text of the law as it exists today. Now, for lawyers, that is true. But I think there's there's a again there's a context within which one can understand uh, a, a copyright and there's a history that even that does have an impact even on the way the statute is is interpreted today. So what I find sort of in in so you, you know um, I mean the 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 period sort of up to the early 20th century was really marked by uh, Canadian both you know. British North America, and then after Confederation Canada, largely looking at the American model. So really, it was a North American context here. Um, in the early 20th century, so the 1920s, we changed, dramatically changed the text of our statute, and we adopted the British the Act of 1911. I mean, so again, those are sort of statutory history. But, you know, what people tend to see when they study Canadian law is that, you know, in the 20th century, we followed the text of the British statute. And that's true. So again, you could say in the 19th century, we followed American law. In the 20th century, we followed British law. But I think if there's nothing that I hope one of the takeaways from the book is that really the text of the statute is one thing, but the way it's interpreted and the way it's understood is really dependent on a cultural and historical context. And so what happened in the 19th century, we can't erase, you know, we can't ignore it. And in fact, there are echoes of that past that inform, you know, current copyright law and, and Canada's larger cultural policy. So, as I explained, what started to happen after the 1842 Act, which is, was really a, a defining moment, was that print, Canadian printers and publishers started to, to find, you know, they started to become more activist. Um, and, they, and, and, and they influenced policymakers uh, in terms of thinking about ways in which uh, the legislature could promote uh, the industry. And so one, the vehicle that was chosen was through uh, in a, introducing a compulsory, what we call a compulsory licensing provision in the Copyright Act. And what that would do was it would force, so, you know, if a, let's say a British copyright work, if a British author didn't produce a Canadian version, so didn't, didn't publish or, or did not make the work available in Canada at an affordable price, a Canadian printer and publisher could, without the permission of the, the, the copyright holder, you know, could repro make a, uh, reproduce the a Canadian edition, basically, of the book, um, paying, you know, there was a statutory duty. So the statute had, you know, whatever, you know, that, that they pay a royalty back to the, uh, the copyright owner. But, you know, it was a way of forcing um, a Canadian edition, so a more affordable ed edition, but also sort of providing Canadian printers and publishers with a vehicle to, to, to print and publish these books. Um, and so it's compulsory because the British copyright holder had no say in the matter, but again, they could get a remunerated. So again, it's modeled on the foreign reprints model, uh, except that it was Canadian printers and publishers that could reproduce 
and you know lawfully under Canadian law, uh, uh, rather than American reprinters. So we and we tried in vain. I mean, it, you know, the, the, again, Canada was still a colony. So legislation that was enacted in Canada still had to be cleared uh, by the UK Parliament. And the, you know, and so it ended up anyway, there are a lot of these attempts were rejected. They were never given royals. The crown had to assent. Uh, the British crown had to assent to Canadian legislation. They didn't. It, you know, there, so there was all kinds of things. But every single bill that was introduced after 1867 sort of, you know, had an attempt to introduce a compulsory licensing provision to support the domestic industry. And we kept. I mean, compulsory licensing has been, you know, very, you know, it really is 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 has been. Um, is disapproved of in international copyright circles because of the fact that it takes control away from the copyright holder. It doesn't the author, you know, sort of again, in an author's rights system, like the French system, you know, you, you, you authors should be able to enjoy all of their rights without constraint. Of course, a compulsory license constrains the right of the author. Um, and so uh, it, it's, fallen, it's, fallen, it's fallen into disrepute over the years, but Canada had a compulsory licensing provision in its Copyright Act until the late 1990s, um, until, no, the early, until the late 1980s, early 1990s, um, when other countries had sort of totally, dis, you know, abandoned this particular mechanism. Uh, and we only, re we only uh, repealed that provision to join the North American Free Trade Agreement. So once you know, you, we sort of start to think about copyright works as, you know, tradable commodities. And we entered into North America, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which has a chapter on intellectual property. We had to abandon the compulsory license provision, but we didn't abandon this need to support our cultural industries, our printing and publishing industry. So Canada was the first and the, still the only, you know, really the, the most important jurisdiction to insist on what we called a cultural industries exemption in the free trade agreement. So it was a way for Canada to protect the publishing industry. Again, sort of arguing that, you know, we we right we live right next door to sort of a, a, you know a copyright superpower. So uh, in order to carve out space for Canadian voices, we needed to have some way of of enabling protectionist measures to support our publishing industry. So, you know, we continue that that sort of that that trend, that thread continues from the 19th century. And I see it as sort of, you know, in, you know, um, embedded in this idea of the cultural industries exemption in free trade agreements. And the other sort of, you know, interesting thing, and I know, I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm not, uh, purporting to suggest that the educate the, the early sort of school teachers and school books, you know, that education policy model of copyright necessarily kind of, you know, um, is, you know, trans transferred through the centuries. Uh, but it is interesting that in, you know, in 2004, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, rendered, so almost 20 years ago, a, a significant decision uh, that you know, established that copyright users, so readers and learners, had equal rights to copyright right holders. Uh, and that included, of course, you know, sort of the ability to, to, to private study and research, what we call fair dealing, uh, what, what you call in the United States fair use. They're, they're similar, they're not identical, but it's similar concepts. Um, so, you know, asserted this idea of user rights. So it's not just an author's right and it's not just a publisher's right. There's, there are users who have rights as well. And um, in 2012, uh, you know, there was some, the Supreme Court added to this or amplified this by ruling, you know, talking specifically about a teacher's ability to make copies of material for students for educational purposes. And in 2012, our statute was amended to include something called fair dealing for education. So sort of the education imperative, not saying, I mean, you know, again, it's an echo from the past, but what it says to me is that education, this advancement of learning has always been an integral part of copyright policy. And, you know, we see that reaffirmed by the Supreme Court and the legislature sort of in, in this century, sort of, uh, you know, in a way that was very similar to the, the issue that the lower Canadian legislature had to look at way back in, in 1832. It's amazing how this historic narrative shows us like that link between current fair dealing um, practices and, and those those roots. Um, 
So I want to wrap up by asking something that really perhaps betrays my lens for reading things as a librarian and archivist. Um, you presented a really interdisciplinary approach in this book. And in thinking about all of the various threads that come together in your research, why do you think this interdisciplinary approach is important? And what are the like areas and, and maybe more so methodologies we should continue looking to as we seek to understand the history of copyright? I, th I really thank you for asking that question because to me that was that was the most sort of um, significant wondrous aspect of doing this work uh, because in the end sort of the methodology uh, lies sort of at the intersection of book history and legal history but I didn't start out that way you know I was a legal scholar and I was thinking in terms of the four corners of of legal history uh, but now I can't imagine anyone doing uh, studying copyright laws history without looking at the law in in the larger context, especially in its relationship with authors, readers, and the book trade. I originally thought, and really naively, um, that the research would be fairly straightforward. That that what I needed I needed to find the traditional legal research sources, statutes, judicial decisions that interpreted the statutes, legislative debates, you know, sort of scholarly commentary. Um, and that these would explain to me the rationale for enacting the law in the first place. And it would also tell me how legislature, legislators, you know, and, and experts understood the law um, and how the law was to be interpreted. But when I started to look, I mean, in, in early 19th century British North America, those records just don't exist. Um, other than the text of the statute, no one went to court over these. Things. I mean, there are no judicial decisions or at least no recorded judicial decisions. There was no recorded legislative debates. Um, There's very little commentary. I mean, there's some newspaper articles that mentioned that the statute had been passed. So, you know, and so when, early on in this work, I went to speak to a group of legal historians about the project and one of the participants uh, explained, exclaimed, sort of told me that this was going to be a very short book. Um, but of course, it, it's actually not a short book, uh, because <laughs> I had to, I started to look beyond the four corners of legal research methods. And once I did, I discovered this wealth of material, it was really, really rich material to examine, and material that provided me with a more integrated foundation to study the question. So I did a deep dive into the lives of the individuals who put copyright forward. Um, I looked through publishers' archives for legal opinions on copyright, for publishing agreements with authors, for copyright registration certificates. I analyzed the copyright registration data, you know, and I read the scholarship of book historians and education historians and social historians to try and unpack kind of what was happening uh, at, at, you know, let's say in 1832 uh, in, in, in the province of Quebec. I had to learn about archival, doing archival research. I had to learn about bibliography. So I should say that I'm enormously grateful to the scholars, archivists, and librarians who helped me along the way. I mean, without their advice and guidance, it, I mean, I had no background in, in this kind of work. Um, and I am I'll always be grateful for their expertise and their willingness to just help. Um, and, and so, um, so thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, interdisciplinarity, I think is critical. You can't restrict yourself to, so I learned you can't, I can't uh, restrict myself to traditional legal research methods to truly understand copyright law and context. And what I found as well in reading the work of book historians is they tend to shy away from a deep dive into the law because yeah, they, they don't so they don't really grapple with the question of how the law itself shapes book and print print culture and understandably because many of them most of them really don't have uh, a legal background or legal education so my book is really an attempt to offer some approaches to the law that may make it easier for book historians to look more deeply at copyright you know as a legal instrument and at its impact so setting copyright registrations for example is one approach or you know looking at the text of the statute and how it, it was interpreted is another way uh, but i believe that the intersection of law and book history really offers boundless research possibilities if we could just broach or breach you know that divide sort of you know bridge that divide uh, so there's there's a lot. It's purposeful. There's a lot of detail in the book um, uh, to enable other scholars to build on the research. You know, so for example, the, the, unfortunately, the registrations for the province of Lower the copy registry books for the province of Lower Canada have can't be found. I mean, they're probably lost. Oh, they're, the only one that was found was for the district of Trois Rivières, 
Um, but, you know, the, the most important ones from Montreal and Quebec City um, haven't been found or they were destroyed or they're just in some box somewhere and in, in deep in the Library and Archives Canada basement somewhere. But um, so I, I provided my recreation of the copyright registry for Lower Canada. So that's an appendix and it's, it's there in the book. It's not entirely complete and it's not accurate, um, but it does enable other scholars to build from my data. So there's a high level of detail in the book, and, and as I say, that was intentional as a way of ensuring um, that the foundational research is available to scholars um, so that they know where to look and what to rely on. So there's, you know, footnotes, and there's a lot of material sort of that, that I hope um, others will find useful. Um, and the idea is to provide the supporting evidence to enable um, book historians and legal scholars to engage in this kind of work in, in that kind of more detailed way uh, and in the approach um, that, that, that I used um, at this kind of um, border between book history and, and legal history. And, you know, to, so it takes me back to my starting point so that, you know, in effect, the courts now have something to rely on. They have evidence-based research to support their conclusion about a country's copyright tradition. So I won't see judge, I hope I won't see judgments anymore <laughs> that will make these blanket assertions as givens without sort of at least kind of, you know, having read my book. <laughs> yeah. And I, the like the footnotes and as you mentioned these extra appendices that you've included they are like such a gift to future researchers uh, there's a really impressive amount of of research in this book um, well thank you Myra um, really grateful to talk with you today once again my name is Jen Hoyer and I've been speaking with Myra Tofik author of For the Encouragement of Learning published by University of Toronto Press thanks for listening to New Books Network